Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Well, good morning, Humanity Church. Happy Halloween. Hope that you're doing well. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm our lead pastor here at Humanity Church. Um, hey, Lauren shared earlier that our uh, giving campaign for November starts now. Uh, for those of you who are new to Humanity Church, if you're online and joining us, every November we pick a cause that we give to um, with our with like something that we can actually purchase and bring here on Sunday mornings. And so, Just Us for Youth is an organization that we partner with um, all throughout the year. They're an amazing organization uh, that helps. I, I love that they don't say at risk youth. They call at Promise Youth, and uh, they have after-school programs that help them engage in uh, all kinds of things. They're paired with mentors, and so they have hungry teenagers after school. Anyone have hungry teenagers in your life? Yeah, so they have hungry teenagers that come to class, and they're like, hey, we're hungry, we need food, and... um, so we want to provide them snacks. And so this week, when you're out, wherever you're going shopping, just grab some chips, grab some, grab some juice boxes, grab some granola bars, whatever you want to grab, uh, bring them here. And we, for the whole month of November, we are collecting uh, snacks for them. So that's what we're going to be up to in the month of November. Hey, let's pause this morning and let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together, to connect with you, to celebrate God. Even as we were lifting up those words this morning, God, it's it's so inspiring to know that that there is uh, abundant life that's available, God. I thank you for how good you are and for how gracious you are. And God, would you continue to to move us and to mold us and the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, we've been in this series called The Regrets of the Dead, where we're taking a look at the sociological study where uh, a woman who worked in hospice specifically worked with people who were in the last 12 weeks of their life here on earth. And she wrote down all of the regrets that they shared with people um, in their last days. It's interesting when people in their last days that I've had the privilege to be with, they, they oftentimes divulge things that they wouldn't normally divulge. And so she began recording what were some of the regrets that people had. And, and she came up with the top five of those. And we've been going through them over the last few weeks so that we might be able to reverse engineer our lives, looking at, hey, if these are the regrets that so many people end up with in life, how can we actually live our lives looking with the end game in sight? And what do we need to do step-by-step step moving backwards in order to not have those regrets at the end of our days. Don't worry, you'll have your own, I'm sure, but that maybe those might not be the ones that we would at the end of our days say we fell into. And that knowing the results we want, we might be able to examine our life, how we live here and now, and fully engage in that. And we talked about the first regret two weeks ago, which was the regret was, I wish that I had the courage to live an authentic life. And we talked about how courage is not simply living your truth. That's a very uh, popular cultural idea that if I'm authentic, I'm simply going to say what I want to do, do what I want to do, behave how I want to do. And then if I show any type of restraint or any type of reservation, that is inauthentic and I'm living a lie. 
And we talked about how really what that's called is self-indulgence. That's not called authenticity. Authenticity is something completely different in the scriptures when we look at it. Really, it's having the, the courage to discover what is true and then the power and strength to fully live that out. Because when we discover what it means to authentically be human, which I believe is the same for all of us, when we, make, when we step into that fully, that, that's when we find our authenticity. Ironically, it's in that space where you also find your uniqueness, that God actually opens up your life to step into the fullness that you specifically were designed for. And the second regret we talked about last week, which is, I wish I wouldn't have worked myself to death. And we talked about how when she did this survey, every single man that she interviewed had this regret. She said that there wasn't even a single one that, that didn't have this regret. And because of the generational gap at that time, not too many women had it, but there was becoming more and more a regret that women shared as well, that they wish they wouldn't have worked so hard. And this often happens when work becomes a core part of our identity, of who we are. When we live in that way, relating to work, we are always trying to prove something. That if I do it good, I'm a good person. If I do it better, I'm a better person. If I do it the best, well, then I'm the best person. And so I strive constantly to get my work to be excellent and because that means something about me. Now, it's not that we don't want to do excellent work. It's actually how we're relating to work that becomes problematic in and all of this self when it determines our worth because when what we do determines our worth, it leaves us exhausted because we're just constantly striving to prove something here and there. See, we talked about what if work wasn't a place to prove something, but it was a place to have us shaped into who we were designed to become. See, the great thing about releasing that regret is that there's nothing to prove. There's nothing to strive for, that your value and your worth is fixed in time, and that our work could simply be a reflection of who God is in our life. So today we're going to look at the third regret that we're going to look at today. It's a little dark in here. Can we turn the lights on? Is it dark out there? Yeah, really dark. Can we turn on the lights? That'd be awesome. So today we're going to look at this third regret that is found in this sociological study. And it's one that in my coaching of individuals, it comes up often. In fact, it comes up with almost every single person that I coach and have a conversation about. And I believe it's one of the things that holds us back the most from fully living in the freedom that we were designed to live. And this is the regret. I wish that I would have shared my feelings. And actually, this regret probably isn't what you think it is. See, when people hear this, they often have the same cultural conversation that we have around authenticity. And right now, our culture has a very odd relationship to these things called feelings. Feelings have become paramount to almost anything else. They've become so important, and in that, they've become the driving factor inform us to, that informs us of, of how we are to live our life. We were living in a day and age where our feelings inform us of what is dangerous and what is safe. They inform us of what is moral and what is immoral. They inform us, they inform us of what is good and what is evil. They've also become pretty much the primary driver of our choices, and the pandemic has both revealed and reinforced this reality. It's interesting, as you look at people that have data presented to them on all sides of the aisle, the great thing about data is it's just data. It doesn't have an opinion. It doesn't have feelings. It's just neutral. And it's interesting as you watch people interact with data that has no opinion or no feelings, and there's a lot of feelings attached to it. Uh, people have made up all kinds of decisions about how they're going to live and what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And in this, everything gets squished into how I feel about the data that's in front of me. 
And hurt feelings have been conflated with violence. And we are constantly shifting in our feelings. See, when you make your feelings the primary driver for your life, the primary thing that informs you of what is good and what is bad, what is moral and immoral, what is dangerous and not dangerous, the problem with that is your feelings always shift, yes? I mean, how many of you notice your feelings shift based on whether or not you've had lunch or not during the day? (laughs) And so when we base our life on our feelings, we are constantly in a state of flux. It would make sense why the world feels incredibly dangerous right now. Because if our feelings are constantly informing us of how we are to live, then we are constantly in a state of keeping up with those feelings. And it creates a sense of chaos around us. In James chapter one, starting in verse five, He gives us this wisdom about our feelings. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. James doesn't really mince words here right now, right? It's interesting because he he says, look, if you lack wisdom, which basically says, look, if you lack any fundamental understanding of how this universe operates, if you're trying to figure out how this thing works, what's the game of life, how do I get ahead, when I do this, what happens, if you're lacking any understanding of that, just ask for it and God will give you a very fundamental understanding of how the world works. This is one of the things that I love about the scriptures is because there's so much wisdom in the scriptures, which is essentially like, hey, here's how I have fundamentally set up this universe for you to win. And if you do this, then this is generally the consequences that will come your way. And so he's saying, if you want that, ask for it. I will give you all of it so you will not be left with anything or any questions about how this world works. But he said, when I give it to you, don't doubt. When I've given you the playbook for life, don't doubt it in your mind, AKA don't allow your feelings then to inform you of what's true when life gets crazy. Don't allow your your own emotions, your own thoughts about the situation in the middle of that because he said when you do that, when you will be tossed back and forth. See, what if our feelings weren't an indicator of how we, what if our feelings were just an indicator of how we are relating to an event? What if that's all they are? Suddenly, my son Jackson, we go to Disneyland often, as I say almost every sermon, and, uh, and uh, suddenly my son, both of my sons have developed this phobia of Pirates of the Caribbean. And I know, it's sad, right? As a dad, it makes me feel very sad. And it is all because of that small drop that's at the beginning of the ride, right? It's in the, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it through the lens of a three-year-old and a four-year-old. It's dark. There's a drop. It's wet. There's scary pirate music playing. I can understand, right? But it's interesting. No, how, no matter how much I try to explain to them, buddy, you're safe. It's okay. There's nothing there. It's just a little slide. You go down the slide at the playground. You like the pool. All those things, no matter what I say to him, his feelings trump everything. In fact, on the last trip, I had this whole glorious plan. We got to Pirates of the Caribbean and I said, buddy, if you go on this, I will get you one of those giant lollipops that will probably end up stuck to the bottom of the sofa somewhere. I will get you a churro and popcorn. Now I thought like, this is the trifecta, right? This is like, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to like throw in a trip to Disney World or something because I'm thinking, how do I get this kid to overcome his feelings? And he looked at me and he said, nope, but you can still buy me all those things if you want to. My son is a great negotiator. (laughs) See, because feelings were never actually meant to inform us of how we are to operate in the world. They're not meant to inform us of how we are to make decisions in life. They 
do not necessarily inform us of how to make decisions in the world. What our feelings do is they inform us of the decisions we've already made about the world. Our decisions inform us of the, uh, our feelings inform us about how we've already decided the world is. Let me just tell you, if you've already decided the world is a scary space, guess what? Your feelings are gonna inform you of that. If you've already told yourself that relationships are dangerous and I shouldn't get too close, your feelings will match that. If you have told yourself that I'm not good enough and I'm never gonna amount to anything and I should withhold back, guess what? Your feelings are going to inform you of those decisions that you've already made. Your feelings are just indicator lights of how we are relating to the world around you. See, this regret isn't that people regretted that they didn't base their life on feelings. The core regret here that was written about and discovered with these individuals was that people allowed their feelings to dictate what they did or didn't do in relationships. They allowed their feelings to dictate what they would say and what they would not say in relationships. They allowed their feelings to determine how they would give themselves and how they would withhold themselves in relationships. But here was the clencher in all of this. All of this was in order to keep the peace. That they, they would rather keep the peace and withhold what was true for them, withhold what they saw, withhold what was going on for them, withhold what they needed, withhold their feedback, withhold their rebuke, because they would rather keep the peace rather than stepping into saying what was needed to transform the relationship to have it turn out. I mean, let's just be honest. How many times in relationship are we just like, yeah, I see this thing's about to fall apart, but I'm not gonna say anything because at least it's peaceful, right? We call that Thanksgiving dinner, right? So, so we were just like, yeah, we're, we're, let's just not talk about that. We're not gonna, let's just keep the peace, keep the peace at all costs in the middle of this. And this is really what this regret was, that they had things to say that would transform the relationship, that would have the vision turn out, but they withheld it to maintain the little that they had. And in the end, it almost always left them resentful of themselves and the other person. There are certain colloquialisms that we have conflated with what the Bible says. In other words, there's these phrases that when we use them, people oftentimes think that they are in the Bible and they're not. They oftentimes come from the South and they're cute phrases, right? Like cleanliness is next to godliness. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, that's actually not in the Bible, right? So I don't know why we got the idea that if we got in a bathtub and we scrubbed ourselves down, we'd be closer to God, but apparently someone thought that would be cute to say, not in there. How about the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves? Yeah, definitely not in the scriptures. Now there are all kinds of scriptures about working and making sure that you're pulling your weight, but there's nothing in the scriptures that say God helps those that helps themselves. How about the phrase, this too shall pass? We use that all the time, right? Like, oh, well, you know, you know what the Lord says, this too shall pass. That's actually not ever in the Bible. The Bible only says this has come to pass, right? But it actually never says this too shall pass. It may not pass. This may just be your life, baby. But the one that I hear so often, and it's in different phrases, and you may not say it out loud, but it's, it's, it's drenched with all kinds of religion in it. And it is that if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. How many of you grew up with that myth, I'll say? <laughs> that, that oftentimes is conflated with the Bible. Now look, there's a lot of scriptures that are connected to the tongue. The scriptures talk about how we are to speak so much. In fact, I encourage you, just go home and Google, what does the Bible say about the power of my words? It actually says that there's power of life and death in your tongue. It says words are to be gracious. It says that we are to account for every single word that we say. 
But there is nothing in the scriptures that tells us to be nice in our words. And yet this is so ingrained in our culture that if it's gonna rock the boats, if it's gonna make them feel bad, if it's gonna make me feel bad, if it's gonna be comfortable, if it's gonna be awkward, it's not being said because it wouldn't be the right thing to do. And we live with this silent wedge between us and other people and others. And we wonder why we lack intimacy in relationships. We wonder why we don't have things turn out the way we long for. So I really wanna reverse engineer this one so that we can fully step into the power of what it means to use our words and our feelings to support others and ourselves in the relationships that we find ourselves in. Scott spoke on this verse this last summer, a really powerful word. Go back to the podcast and listen to it in Proverbs 27, five through six. It says this, better is in an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. See, notice that it doesn't say better is an open rebuke than hidden rebuke. It doesn't say that in the scriptures because the scriptures are comparing rebuke or correction or sharing what we see or giving feedback. They're actually saying, look, rebuke is on the same level of love. It doesn't say better is open rebuke than hidden love. It says, or hidden rebuke, it says better is open rebuke than hidden love. Because when we are unwilling to share what we see, when we are unwilling to share what's going on over there, what we need, the hurt that we have, when we withhold that from others, we find ourselves withholding love at the same time. Because the scriptures actually put those two together. That rebuking and correcting and sharing and being open and honest in our communication is the same as loving that other person over there. Because here's the thing, love always speaks. Love always is honest with one another. But how often do we choose nice over love with the people in our lives? See, it's interesting because nice comes from the same root word as ignorant or to ignore. And so when we're busy being nice with other people, what we're actually busy doing, busy with is ignoring what's happening over there. Yeah, I can see what's happening. I can see that this thing is not working. I can see how this dynamic in the relationship is eventually going to be the end of this. I can see how that's going to affect you and your family, but I'm gonna be nice and I'm gonna ignore it so that I don't have to actually address what I see over there. See, so often we're in the business of being nice over loving In the meantime, all we're doing is ignoring what we see over there to support them. When we ignore things like character issues, we ignore things like pain and hurt in the relationship or mistrust or expectations, we actually find ourselves in judgment of the other person because it doesn't go away, right? We just shove it down and then it turns into judgment. So now silently we're like, yeah, that person's crazy <laughs> or that, I, you know, I'm not really gonna talk to that person because they're dangerous or I'm not really gonna engage with this over there. Or then it starts leaking out in other ways. We find ourselves getting passive aggressive or we gossip or we bring prayer requests to other people about what's going on with that person and how they need to change and what needs to be transformed in them. Or my favorite is we just blast it on social media. And it usually starts with a post that sounds like, I'm so tired of people who dot, 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 right? I, I am so sick of people who, every time someone posts that, that I know, I DM them and I said, who is the person that you're talking about? <laughs> and oftentimes, oh, it's just like a general they. I'm like, no, 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 that's not a general they. Who, who, what person demonstrated this behavior? And it always comes back to someone. And then I'm like, have you spoken to them? 
Well, no, they just won't listen. How, how do you know if you haven't spoken to them, right? But, but, but shouting this to the universe seemed like a better idea than going and having a conversation with them. And so we find ourselves needing to, it leaks out in some way. We think we have it just shoved down, hidden, or swept under the rug, but I guarantee you it finds its way out. And here's the thing, it will always eventually kill the relationship or it will kill the version of the relationship that you think is safe and you'll find yourself regretful. See, because oftentimes what happens is when you're unwilling to share what you see, you're unwilling to share your feelings and you're unwilling to share what you notice over there, when they fall off the cliff, you're like, yep, saw that coming. And then you get to be right about how awesome you are about what you saw, <laughs> even though you are unwilling to share it with the other over there. Or at worst, we just exist on some parallel path, journeying together, disconnected, isolated, living in the same room or in the same office or sleeping in the same bed with some of us and never actually experiencing the fullness of intimacy and we call that love because we're unwilling to share what's going on for us that's needed in the middle of that. See, the scriptures call for our speech to be kind. It calls for our speech to be humble. It calls for our speech to be gentle. It calls us to be thorough with our communication, but that is all distinct from being nice. It's very distinct from being nice in the relationship. See, because kindness and generosity and humility always shares what it sees that is happening for that other person over there. It always shares the rebuke. It always shares the correction. It always shares the need. It always shares the hurt. It always shares the feedback. It always shares because that's what love does and that's what kindness does and that's what generosity does and that's what humility does for the other person over there. I mean, have you ever been on the receiving end of someone who withholds communication from you? Like when you know, like you've noticed that person, a person's distant or they're disconnected or something's going on or they've told like five other people that something's going on and you know that something's there when you ask, hey, is everything okay? And they're like, fine, I'm fine. That's the worst, right? That just, that just drives you crazy. Let me just tell you, as a pastor, things get back to me and I, I like people be upset with me because there's a thousand things to be upset with me, by the way, all the time. And I'm always shocked that more people aren't upset with me. And, and, and it's amazing how I'll get word back like so-and-so's upset with you, so-and-so's frustrated. And I'll be like, okay, I'm gonna go have a conversation with them. And then I'll talk to them. Hey, is there anything we need to talk about? No, I'm good. I'm good, man. I'm like, that's strange because you told 17 other people we weren't good. That's so weird. And, and you haven't been responding to any of my text messages. That's so crazy, right? It drives me crazy because I'm like, can we just actually have the conversation? Would you love me enough to share what's going on for you over there so that we can actually have the conversation? Because when we're on the receiving end of that, it drives you crazy trying to figure out what do I need to do and, and how did I miss it up and, and what's needed over there when the other person is withholding. Imagine what others feel like when we are withholding from them. It drives people insane in the process. <laughs> See, when we withhold our heart or our feedback or our communication under the guise of being nice, we usually make it about protecting the other person. 
We usually use all kinds of excuses like, you know, um, I, you know I, I just don't want to hurt their feelings or I'm just going to let it go so that, that you know, that I, I, it's probably my thing or, you know, they're in a bad space or they might fall apart or the relationship might break down. We make it all about the other person and how great we are and how we're protecting them and how we're making sure they're taken care of. But what it usually is about is it not getting messy that I don't want to feel uncomfortable having this conversation, that I don't want things to get awkward, that I want to stay in control of what's happening because if I share honestly what's going on for me and what I'm feeling and what I'm noticing, then things get messy, then things get uncomfortable. Let me tell you, they almost always get awkward and they most always get out of control. And so we find ourselves avoiding all of that. We think that we are keeping the peace when what we are actually called to be is peacemakers, which actually intervenes in anything that is inhibiting peace from happening. That's what a peacemaker does. See, peacekeepers are over here going like, hey, let's just keep things steady. Don't rock the boat. Let's just make sure we get through Thanksgiving. Let's just make sure we get through Christmas. Let's just make sure we get through this next year. Just mitigate everything over here. Peacemakers say, no, 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 we're having the conversation because what I'm interested in peace is peace. And this, this isn't working. So we're gonna have the conversation and we're gonna keep having the conversation until we figure this thing out so that we can actually live in this authentic space called peace. See, when we are unwilling to do that, we actually become the enemy, the scriptures say. The scriptures don't say it's like a neutral thing. How many of you ever thought like, it's a neutral thing when I don't share? No, 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 no. Whenever you see something, whenever something comes up for you, whenever there is a hurt or a need or some feedback or some rebuke and you withhold it, I don't ever want you to think about it as a neutral act ever again. I want you to think in that moment you are saying to yourself, I am choosing to become this person's enemy because that's what the scriptures actually say here in this moment that we become the enemy. This says an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, an enemy only tells you what is nice. An enemy only affirms you. An enemy only hold, talks about the positive things. All the while withholding truth from you in the middle of this. But a friend, it says that a friend is willing to wound or risk wounding for the sake of the truth and for the sake of the relationship turning out. See, so notice in this equation, there's no getting out of suffering. I know, I know we all, as a, look, I too, we all have this fantasy that there's this life we can live that is void of suffering, <laughs> that is void of some type of pain, that is void of some type of discomfort in life. But in this equation, you only get to choose who suffers and how they suffer. Welcome to life, right? <laughs> see, because here's the scenario. In scenario A, you see something over there that's not working in the relationship. You notice behavioral patterns. You think, think, see things that need to be corrected. There are things that are eventually gonna to lead to this person's destruction and you withhold your feelings. You withhold them, you withhold your rebuke, you withhold your communication and the other person suffers because they cannot see that blind spot and they end up driving their life off a cliff and that is the suffering that they get to experience and you suffer because you lost the relationship that you say mattered to you and the only possibility is death in that situation. Scenario B, you see what's going over there. You have some rebuke, you have some correction, you have some feedback, you have some communication, you share it with the other person. And the other person may have their ego bruised for a moment. They may feel bad 
They may not like what you have to say immediately. And so they suffer the momentary discomfort of hearing what you have to say. And then you suffer the awkwardness and the lack of comfort and the lack of control of the moment. But in doing that, it actually opens up possibilities for possibilities. It opens up possibilities for a new relationship to emerge out of the conversation. See, because the wounds of a friend can always be trusted. See, the question that you have to ask yourself is, do you have friends that are willing to wound you for the sake of love? See, if I go more than two months and I haven't had some type of correction or rebuke, I'm like, y'all my enemies, right? <laughs> I'm like, no joke. If someone has not told me something that I, where I missed it or I'm doing it wrong or I'm out of alignment, look, because I know I'm not no perfect person, right? So if I'm going through life and I'm, I'm not getting any feedback on where I'm missing it or where things aren't working, I'm like, something's off, something's off. I'm either training all these people that everything's fine over here and I got this really well covered or I have created relationships where I just want enemies rather than friends. And so I get anxious when I don't get feedback at least every two months or on something that's not working. See, but the question also that you have to ask is, do you have friendships and relationships that are important enough for you to risk wounding, that are important enough for you to speak and share what's going on for the sake of love? See, later in, later in Proverbs 27, it says this verse, which I actually have grown to hate how it's lost all of its meaning. I'm gonna read it for you and probably all of you have heard this verse, even if you're not a follower of Jesus. And I hate that I'm gonna read it and you're instantly gonna think of like a Bible cover or like a cute phrase or something that's thrown on someone's bumper sticker. And it is this, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But see, even though this verse has lost almost all of its meaning because it's become so cute, this is the way that Jesus actually moves through people in community. This is the plan that Jesus has to transform our lives and our hearts and move us, move us to the people he designed us to become. See, because if we all get together and sing kumbaya and tell each other nice things and then go home, what's the point? That's not this. See, if you ever have seen how iron actually sharpens iron, it's a brutal process. Go to a blacksmith, right? I mean, that thing is hot. It is hot, blazing hot. And then they take handvils and hammers and they start beating that thing and chunks are flying and the guy has a mask on and gloves on because he might burn himself. I mean, it is a dangerous environment to be in when you are sharpening iron in the middle of all this. This is not sipping lattes and sharing our life verses or what we learned in our quiet time that week. That's not what this is. See, this is intentional, powerful community where we hammer it out with one another and that takes both courage and love to actually speak what we see, to actually share what needs to be sharpened over there. To say, hey, I love you enough to point out this area that has grown dull and bland and that it is not the edge that you were designed to live with. So I love you enough to start hammering it out with you in the middle of this. See, we are to sharpen one another and that is the gift that you get to give. See, because here's the thing, you can see it and chances are they can't. How many of you get, you all have blind spots in life? You have all areas, they're just like, I just, how many of you keep doing things and in your head you're like, why do I keep doing this? Yes, am I the only one? Okay, just checking. <laughs> I mean, look, we all have areas where like, why do I keep making this stupid decision over and over again? 
Why do I keep having this same argument with my spouse? Why do I keep doing this thing that I say I'm gonna stop doing and yet I keep doing it over and over and over again and I can't seem to stop? Because here's the thing, we all have blind spots. And if I don't have someone that loves me enough to say, hey, here's where you're missing it, I'm just gonna walk through life blind, not knowing what's needed to transform this. See, you will only be able to transform them when someone loves you enough, actually shares what they see and feel and experience, even if it's hurts, even if it hurts, even if it's uncomfortable. See, this is how God has designed us to be in community that actually cares about one another, cares enough to speak, even if it wounds. And when we choose not to, here's what happens. Everyone just goes around living a dull life. No one actually gets to live the profound, powerful, razor-sharp edge life that you were designed to live. And we wonder why we lose passion. We wonder why our life is lackluster. We wonder why at times our life doesn't have that, that, that special something that we know we were designed for because we don't know what's needed to transform it. I mean, I am so grateful that I have people in my life that sharpen me, that are willing to speak in and say, Nathan, knock it off. You've gone the wrong way. This is not you. This is dull. You were designed for sharp. They have the courage to speak. And let me tell you, when people see things and they don't speak, it feels like there's not much love in the relationship. It feels like I'm left without. There's this moment where Jesus has with his disciples in Matthew 16, 21, and it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and that on the third day he'd be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Peter Peter was one bad dude. I don't know about you, but I'm not the guy who's going to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. But Peter does, and and he says, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. I don't know if I would like to, I don't know, Peter, I'd be like, right, that moment, right? You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, in this moment, I know Peter was probably hurting, but I think probably a few hours later, Peter got how much Jesus loved him that he was willing to speak this into his life. See, because in this moment, Jesus lets Peter know what he sees and what he's feeling and what's going on for him in the moment. It's not nice, but it is loving. And what Jesus understood was that Peter's way of thinking about suffering was not going to serve him if he was gonna become the person on whom he built his movement. That he recognized that, that Peter's like aggression and his unwillingness to suffer for others and his unwillingness to sacrifice was not going to serve him for the mission that was ahead of him. And so Jesus could have said in this moment, he could have just been like, oh, this is awkward. Ugh, yeah, this is, I don't feel good about this conversation. So you know what, Peter? I'll take that into consideration. Thank you for your thoughts. And walked off. But he said, no, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. Your minds are not set on these things that I'm talking to you. You're set on other things because he knew that Jesus had, Jesus knew in that moment that he had to speak, that he had to correct because Peter had become dull in his willingness to suffer. And Jesus was like, I gotta sharpen this up because this is the dude that I have chosen to build everything on. 
And if I do not speak, everything will be lost in this moment. And he would never have been willing to go through the suffering that he had to go through later on for the sake of the movement of Jesus. And this is what Jesus does for us. But this is also what we are called to be for one another in community, in relationship with one another, in connection with one another, to be the voice that speaks out those things. Now, let me just say this. Honesty in and of itself is not a virtue. I know that's like a, that's also a weird thing to say, right? Because we're like, we're supposed to be like, wait, what? Hold on. You just told me to share all my feelings. But here's the thing. Honesty is not in and of itself a virtue. This is another cultural twist that we have on this thing. See, you don't have permission to just go around telling people Satan when you, calling people Satan when you feel like they're Satan, right? So please don't go home and like when, you're, when your wife doesn't cook you the dinner you want, be like, get behind me, Satan, Right? You don't get to walk up to people and be like, that makes you look fat. I'm just telling my truth, right? (laughs) This is another thing that our culture has also conflated is that it's almost like, hey, to be authentic, to be real, I just have to share what's honest for me. Sharing what's honest for you is not virtuous. But here's the thing, sharing what is honest and true for you in the sake of a vision for the relationship out of love is one of the most powerful tools you'll have. When honesty is connected to love, when they travel together and they always must travel together, when honesty is connected to love and it is also connected to a vision for the relationship for the other person, it's so profoundly transforming. See, Proverbs 16, 24 says, pleasant words are like honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. See, if you notice that your words don't leave wounds, but they leave bullet holes, you're doing it wrong. Because the wounds were designed to strengthen. They were designed to move you forward. Because see, there there are some things in life that can only be corrected by a wound. Like a broken bone has to be reset. It's another wounding, it's another breaking. Even when you go to the gym, It's like a breaking of the muscles that have grown tired to to grow them back together. So just wounding for the sake of wounding is not what we're talking about here. But sharing it out of love and compassion for the other becomes one of the most profound tools that God has given us. See, when people say that they lived with this regret or at the end of their days, this is what they regretted. What they're saying is, I wish I had enough courage and enough love for the other person to share what was going on for me. That relationship totally could have been transformed. There could have been something brand new birthed for them and birthed for me in the middle of us. Both of us didn't need to suffer so unnecessarily in all of this because my unwillingness to speak, it killed the intimacy. It killed, the, it killed the, the love and it killed the honesty and it killed the generosity and it interrupted the tra- trajectory of our lives that could have been there, that we were designed for. In other words, this regret is saying, I was not the gift that I was made to be for the people that I say I love the most because I was too concerned with my own comfort. I was too concerned with being nice and keeping the peace and staying in control and making sure things did not get awkward. And in that, I regret that I became the enemy to the people that I said I love the most. 
as you leave here today, I want you to ask yourself in your relationships, what's not being said? What have you been holding on to? What have you been unwilling to say? Maybe you have all kinds of excuses of, hey, I'm just being nice, or I'm withholding this because they're too weak, or I'm withholding this because I don't want things to get messy. But I want you to consider that if you love that person, that God has put you in that person's life for a gift out of kindness and generosity to serve as a mirror, to allow them to be one in yours as well. When was the last time you asked someone, just said, hey, you, do you love me? Would you give me some feedback about what you see and what's needed and what needs to be corrected and what needs to happen in my life over here? See, some of you are going to have to upset some unhealthy patterns in withholding. Some upset, some, some ways of just, hey, here's how we've always done it. Here's how we've established family. Here's how we've called this friendship. And I need to repent for my unwillingness to share to be kind, to love you in the middle of all this. See, we do this so that at the end of our days, we can say, I left nothing on the table. I, I left nothing on the table. I left nothing unsaid. I fully gave my gift to every single person in my life. I was unwilling to hold it back. And yes, it hurt at times. And yes, it was awkward. And yes, it was uncomfortable. But there will not be wonderings about what if in the relationship because we gave it all. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would give us the courage to speak out of love. God, that you would give us the strength to love hard enough to have the uncomfortable conversations with the vision of of love and compassion and, and generosity and humility, God, not for the sake of hurting or wounding or being right, God, but that we might be those whose speech is both filled with grace and truth, with love and compassion, God. God, with rebuke and vulnerability. And God, may we be those who are willing to receive that from others as well. May we be those when people speak true to us, truth to us, we might receive it humbly and openly and with curiosity, God. God, I thank you that you've placed us in community with one another to, to know these things, to hear these things, to share these things so that we are never without an excuse. And this morning, if you're here and you have not yet connected to Jesus, a lot of this may not make sense because It's only in the connection with him that it would make sense to be so truthful and honest to share for the sake of love for the other. So this morning, if you wanna connect to him, maybe for the first time in a long time or maybe for the first time at all, this is your moment just to step into relationship with him. There's nothing weird about it. It's just like connecting relationship with anyone else, except it's it's just releasing your life to him and saying, I'm making you Lord. I, I give up, I've done a pretty good job up until now, but I need help. So if that's you this morning and you're like, hey, I wanna connect to Jesus for the first time now or for the first time in a long time, would you just raise your hand? No one's looking around. Awesome. If you're online, you can just click that button that says, today I make a decision to follow Jesus. And I want you just to pray this prayer with me silently. 
There's no magic words. It's just connecting to him. Just say, dear Jesus, I know that you are Lord. I give you my life. And I know that you died to life, died and you came back to life for me. So I give you everything. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You know, this morning, if you're here and you're like, hey, I, I need a space where people can share honestly into my life. I, need, I, need a, I don't have a lot of people that, that can speak truth and can share what they see and give their feelings. I know we make these like cries and these pleas every Sunday, but I'm gonna encourage you to find a humanity group this week to get connected to. It is a place where you will be known and you can know other people's. It is a space where honesty and love and grace will be spoken into your life I can't tell you how many times I've come to a group just kind of all over the place and have people shared what they see, shared what God's speaking to them through them to me, and it's radically shifted my week. It's shifted my life. So find a group this week. You can go on the app. You can go back to Next Step, but don't go away this week not having a community that will speak into your life. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.